Our Father and God, we do love you. We join with all the creatures of our God and King, declaring Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you deserve all of our praise, all of our adoration, all of our love, all of our affection. And we want you to be glorified, O Lord and God, in everything that we do here at this place. And for reasons ultimately that are known only to you, people keep coming. And uh, Lord, we understand that all of that could change at a moment's notice. But if it continues to happen, we need to be responsible and wise in terms of how we care for the people who come and especially for those who enter into membership with us. So we pray that you would guide us and give us wisdom. We praise you and thank you for this challenge, this um, situation that has been dropped into our lap. We ask that you would give us wisdom. We thank you for our brothers and sisters and for the wisdom that they bear and would pray, O oh Lord and God, that they would always know that our door is open, that we are happy to receive their input and all of those kinds of things as we Seek your mind with regard to the next step, when and if we must make it. And Father, all of this is because we want to see your kingdom advance. We want to see the Great Commission accomplished. And the Great Commission is best and most effectively accomplished in the context of a local church. And so we pray and ask, O Lord and God, that uh, you would begin even now preparing us for that occasion when we will make a more significant and more permanent move for the sake of the gospel. Our Father, we do pray for our brother Lee as he will be taking the gospel with him to Arizona and ask that he would be a means of great blessing to this congregation, that he himself would have his own heart and mind gripped powerfully by the truths that he's declaring about you. May he remember always that he has nothing to say, ultimately, if it's not Jesus Christ. We pray and ask, O oh Lord and God, that you would be with Lisa Helmberger, that you would continue to strengthen her. Father, we rejoice in the grace you give to people who are not Christians, the grace you give to doctors and nurses that we can benefit from. But we know ultimately that Lisa is in your hands. We praise you that she's home, that she's recovering. Give Mark wisdom and strength and endurance to know best how to love her and care for her and that you would restore her back to full health very quickly, and that she could uh, uh, be back with us again in fellowship. We pray for our brothers who are a part of the ministry of Humble Beast, doing ministry in places that most of us are altogether unaware of. Oh, Lord and God, we are reminded by these brothers that we are not to be a little island of irrelevant piety that hides off away from the world. You expect us to be engaged right in the middle of it. And we are thankful, O oh God, that these brothers in many ways express what all of us are to be doing. Care for them, bless them, give them endurance. And now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we recognize every one of us here is marked with great limitations. And so we come, O oh Lord, with our hands empty, altogether dependent upon your word and your spirit. Guide us, lead us, help us tonight. And 
What we leave undone, we look forward to next Wednesday, if you will. But we do praise you, Father, for the evidences of your blessing, for the evidences of your great grace. To you alone be all glory. Father, we pray for all churches in Portland and Vancouver that are faithful to the gospel. Bless, bless them and prosper them. Help men to come to understand that the answers for ministry do not reside in the latest schemes, gimmicks, techniques. But in the authority of your word, the centrality of the gospel, in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. Open your Bibles, friends, to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And Missy, you'll just signal me when in the time is... So I've got, I've got some questions that we're going to engage with tonight. I don't know that I'll make, make it through the, even the ones that we have, and I'm not even sure what I'm going to say. So, um, uh, but I would like to just begin by making a couple comments, reading this little section of Matthew 11, and hopefully this will set us in a trajectory that will give direction to everything else we do tonight. Beginning in verse 20. Then he, that is Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. These are the cities of Galilee. Jesus is going around preaching the gospel, performing miracles. The people are refusing to believe. They're not repenting. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. This is Jesus saying these things. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Dear friends, one thing for you to keep in mind is that while all sins damn, not all sins are equally reprehensible. There is a sin that is far greater than any other sin, and that is the rejection of gospel light. The rejection of the light of the gospel. It's going to be better on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know the sin that's in view there. It's going to be better on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it's going to be for people who have the light of the gospel and refused it. As it were, a hotter hell in the categories of Dante... Now notice, notice the response of Jesus, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That is a title for God that came after the exile. Israel began calling God the Lord of heaven and earth because they've come to realize he's not just a God confined to our little piece of geography in the Middle East. He's the Lord of all of heaven and earth. It's a statement of his sovereignty. I thank you. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, what am I thanking you for? That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So, you come on the Sunday when I'm preaching this particular passage, and you will leave out of the parking lot saying to your wife, saying to your husband, that guy is an unmitigated, unashamed, unambiguous Calvinist. Verse 
you come back next Sunday. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And if I preach that passage right, you will leave that Sunday morning saying to your wife, saying to your husband, that guy sounds like an unmitigated Arminian. You say, Art, how do you reconcile these two things? I have no burden to reconcile them. Friends don't need to be reconciled. Friends don't need to be reconciled. Enemies need to be reconciled. These are not contradictory concepts in God's mind. And you see, dear friends, it is when we go beyond the Bible and attempt to reconcile these kinds of things in our own minds that we end up trimming the edges of each truth to make them fit together. And so for all of my evident obvious frailties and fallibilities that are probably more obvious to you than they are to me, I can say this. Biblical fidelity is to me far more important than possessing an airtight theological system. In fact, when someone asks me, are you a Calvinist and I have my wits about me, I will always say this. What do you mean by that? And when I say that, I don't do that to be impertinent, beloved. I come back with this because, one, most people who ask me this have never, ever read John Calvin, who, frankly, is far more or less Calvinistic than some of his followers. And, two, many, many people possess a faulty caricature, a distortion of Calvin, so that they think he didn't care about evangelism, that he didn't freely offer the gospel, that he didn't say to people, come to Jesus Christ right now, that he actually believed that even though some people want eternal life and they want Jesus Christ, God says no, because after all, they weren't predestined. And so what we always want to strive for here is fidelity to the biblical text. Always, 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 always. Okay? That having been said, here is the very first question. If your position is so plainly scriptural, this is Dr. Thiessen asking me this question. Why do most evangelicals not hold it? If your position is so, and I'm underscoring it because I know this is what Norm means. If it is so plainly, obviously scriptural, why do not most evangelicals hold it? And of course, what Norm wants me to say is because I'm smarter than everybody else. That's what he wants me to say. <laughs> Are they willfully blind? Let me rephrase the question, okay? Because we want to have a good time with this. Why do good Christian people who love the same Bible disagree on these matters? That's really the nub of the issue. Norm, right? Um, why do good Christian people who love the very same Bible possess the same regard for its authority disagree on these matters? Well, as I was thinking about it today, I jotted down three answers with a little P.S. And, and, and no doubt there are more, but uh, I, I mean, this could be a whole sermon in itself. I suppose it could be a month of sermons. Answer number one. 
because of the limitations endemic to fallen human beings. Because of the limitations endemic to fallen human beings. The very first evening we began this series, I took you through a long series of verses that speak of the effects of the fall on human beings. Remember? Page after page after page in your bulletin. Showing you how sin has compromised our bodies. Sin has compromised our affections. Sin has compromised our wills, our consciences, our hearts, our minds. Romans chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 4. The most intelligent man or woman on this planet has a mind that is affected by the distortions of the fall. Your mind is not a little island kept free from Sin, friends, sin has tainted every part of who you are. And this is just as true of me as it is anybody else. Which is why, like good Bereans, Acts chapter 17, you always need to go home, open your Bibles, and make sure I got it right. It's not fair for you to go home, be mad at me, and not open your Bible. Nor is it appropriate for you to go home, not open your Bible, and say, well, if Art said it, it must be right. I appreciate the respect and the affection, friends, but I don't want that from you. That's an appropriate authority that you are granting me. Because, after all, I can be wrong. I'm probably not. Don't tell anybody. The emperor has no clothes. Um, But it is possible, right? Of course it's possible. Now, here's the problem. I don't want to be wrong, nor am I mindful of where I'm wrong. If I was mindful of where I was wrong, I would fix it. I would make it right. And I, I study and work hard because I only want the truth because the truth of the Bible is the only infallible thing. So so we must never lose sight of the fact that for every single one of us, beloved, the fall has affected our minds. Now, the exciting thing is, in the new creation, when we finally experience the consummation of our salvation, our minds will be free from all of the impediments of the curse. Now, that's not to say that we will be omniscient. It's not to say that you will now know everything that God knows. Glorification is not deification. But it does mean that our capacity to absorb spiritual truth will be radically enhanced. And what I'm hoping for, not that I have any pull there, what I'm hoping for is that we're all going to sit down with Jesus and he's going to start in Genesis 1 and take us through the whole Bible. Answer number two. It's because of the distance that exists between the Bible and ourselves. It's because of the distance that exists between the Bible and ourselves. Do you read ancient Hebrew? Do you read Koine Greek? There is a distance between you and the original text that cannot be fully bridged by simply putting an English Bible in your hands, regardless of what a good translation it is. Beyond all of that, dear friends, are you well acquainted with the customs of the ancient Middle East? Are you well acquainted with the geography of the Bible lands? All of this puts distance between you and the Bible. And here we are right now on the Lord's Day mornings, Revelation. You know we're dealing with a style of literature that hasn't been written since A.D. 200. I mean, mean, we're having to rebuild the whole structure right in front of your very eyes because we have not got the slightest idea what apocalyptic literature is like, you see? 
And so you have all these barriers that we have to overcome. Are you familiar, for example, with all of the heresies floating around the first century that the apostolic writers have to contend with? You want to read First John? Good choice. But do you know anything about protonosticism? Because until you do, you won't fully appreciate what John is saying. Moreover, have you identified the big storyline of the Bible so that you always understand how a specific passage you are considering fits in with the purposes of the whole? So that though the Bible was not written to you, it has been written for you, but because it was not written to you, your job as a student of the Bible is to first answer the question, what did it mean then before you ever begin to deal with what does it mean now? What did it mean to them? And until you get that question right, you cannot begin to say, what does it mean to me now? When we read that someone in the Bible had her womb closed by the Lord, is that an airtight proof of how we ought to do birth control today? Absolutely, positively not. There's so many other things that contribute to that discussion, but people do that kind of thing with the Bible all the time. What did that mean then? Because it meant something huge. Um, and... Uh, so, so, friends, some people are better at that than other people. What did the Bible mean then before you ever can deal with what does it mean now? Because it can't mean now what it never meant then. This thing doesn't morph. Okay? And that's hard work. Here's the third answer. Because God has not seen fit to give us all possible information on any subject. Everything that God has given to us is true, but he has not given anything comprehensive on any subject. Which means, friends, practically speaking, being faithful to the text often requires the humility to live with non-closure. Come January, we're going to talk about marriage and family. And there is a ton that the Bible never tells us. Boy, we got people wanting to tell us every little nuance about family life and assuring us that they have biblical authority for doing so. Now, we're going to push really, really hard at that come January. See, Regarding the inspiration of the Bible means that we are silent where it is silent. We are not dogmatic where the Bible is not dogmatic. Why did God decree the existence of evil? Well, we can say because in the end of the day it serves to redound to God's glory, if nothing else, his righteousness and holiness and justice. You say, but Art, couldn't God have revealed these features of his being in some other way? Perhaps he could have. You say, well then, so why didn't he? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Why doesn't God save all people? Why did God decree the fall? God has not seen fit to give us all possible information on any subject. And where we need to be very careful, beloved, is that we can come very, very close to irreverence when we get impatient with God about these kinds of things. As though somehow he is beholden to us. You better give us all the facts. Otherwise, I'm not going to embrace it. This is why St. Augustine said hell is prepared for people who ask such questions. Not because there isn't a place for honest asking, but because some people seem to be driven by a pathological lust to know all God's secrets, or in the words of Martin Luther, to pull up God's skirts and look at what is otherwise hidden. And why is this the case? 
And many times because they want to be certain that his will squares with their own sense of what is just and fair. And it is to this very person who squabbles with God's fairness, particularly over issues of salvation, that Paul says in Romans 9, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? If you're offended by that, friends, you need to pause and ask yourself why. What will what, what, is, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that there are secret things that belong only to the Lord. And so I say to my students very often, you know the difference between a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. A freshman doesn't know that he doesn't know. A sophomore knows that he doesn't know. A junior knows, but he doesn't know that he knows. And a senior knows, and he knows that he knows. And we never, ever, ever get past being a sophomore. Let me tell you a little secret, friends. I've been studying the Bible for 30 years. I have more questions now than I've ever had. Because with every new thing I learn, I realize that there is a whole chasm of other things that I didn't even know there were questions about. So at the end of the day, we begin our theological study with this commitment. God is incomprehensible. God is finally, ultimately incomprehensible. Isaiah says, who has understood the mind of the Lord? Do you remember how God answered Job? After all the sufferings, why, why, what? Chapter after chapter, why, 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 why? You realize God never answers Job. He shows Job his glory, and Job says, I need to keep my mouth shut because I don't understand it, and I don't need to. You are sovereign, and beyond that, it is not within my capacities to know. And beloved, whenever we demand an explanation from God that is suitable to our palate, we violate the creator-creature relationship. Now, here's my P.S. And I say it with a smile, okay? I really don't think that many of these things we've been talking about are that hard to understand. Humanity has fallen beyond its own powers to repair. Dozens of verses teach this. The Father elects a people to save. Dozens of verses teach this. The Son makes atonement for people. Dozens of verses teach this. The Spirit in turn grants new life to these people and enables them to believe. Dozens of verses teach this. Father, Son, and Spirit preserve us so that we persevere to the end. Dozens of verses teach this. So that with all due respect, dear friends, I think the question most of the time is not, why is this so hard to understand? I think the real question most of the time is, why is this so hard for me to accept? Which reminds me that the most important thing that you bring to Bible study is not a razor-sharp mind, but a submissive heart that says, I'm prepared to believe your truth. I'm prepared to embrace your truth. It doesn't need to settle with my way of looking at things. Give me the heart to accept 
what your word teaches. Jesus says, John 8, 31, I think you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. There is a pattern there, friends. I am looking for an experience that is freedom. I'm looking for an experience that is a result of knowing truth. I'm not looking for truth that is a result of my experience. There is a proper cause and effect. And by God's grace, we always want this to distinguish Trinity Church. Okay? All right. Next question. You made the point in your sermon that you and I are not worth saving, but Christ died for us anyway. Would you draw a distinction between the concepts that we do have worth, but we are not worthy of being saved? Christ himself says that we are of more worth than many sparrows. It would seem that our being made in the image of God gives us worth. Would Christ die for something that is worthless? Scripture seems to point to the fact that Christ died for we who are manifestly unworthy, but not worthless. Great question. Turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. We dealt with this <clears throat> passage in some detail over the summer, so you can listen to it online. But uh, Psalm 8, and I'll just read oh, verses 3 through 8, I think. Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Actually, this says you have made him a little lower than Elohim. He may be talking here about God. You've made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor. When you crown someone, you make someone a king or a queen. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Human beings are creatures of great worth, which frankly, friends, I find to be such a compelling motivation to do evangelism. It's why a bigoted Christian is a contradiction in terms. It's why keeping ourselves away from, hidden away from the dirty people of this world is something that can never characterize the people of Trinity Church. That is a contradiction to everything you profess to be true about the gospel. You're a dirty, filthy person in the eyes of God. Which means we love the intel executive and the street person covered in tattoos in the exact same way. You are the epitome, the climax of God's creative Design Now, because of the fall, the human race has failed to achieve its ultimate purpose. But this, of course, is overcome in the gospel as Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and is the first of an entirely new humanity that will realize its originally designed potential and rule as God's vice regents in the new creation. We were careful about this in Revelation 21 and 22. We saw it in Hebrews chapter 2 this summer. So, that having been said, when someone comes to me and is struggling with self-esteem, and I'm assuming that the reason why they're coming to me is because they want to know what the Bible says. I am not a counselor. I'm not a psychologist. When someone comes to me and is struggling with self-esteem issues and they want to know what the Bible says on this issue, this is how I would address it. Look at what God has made you to be. 
He hasn't done this with anything else he's made, not even the angelic realms in all of heaven. You bear the likeness of God. And that's true whether you wear a size 2 dress or a size 24 dress. That's true whether you earn a six-figure income or you're on welfare. That's true whether or not you have a college degree. And by the way, Genesis chapter 9, this is the reason why capital punishment is enforced. Because when you kill someone, you have killed someone who bears the very image and likeness of God. So I say to this person who has come to see me, look at what the Bible says about you. I do not address their self-esteem by saying, let me show you how wonderful you are. Jesus died for you. There was a book that came out about 10 or 15 years ago by a person in the Bay Area called uh, You're Worth the Sun. But this totally undercuts the doctrine of the atonement, friends. The cross of Jesus Christ is never, ever, ever on the pages of the New Testament used as a basis for self-worth. You were so good, Jesus died for you. You are so wonderful and cuddly and terrific, God died for you. Rather, his death for you is an expression of his great love for you. And what makes that love so great is not the realization that you are so good and wonderful, but that you, in fact, were so bad. That's what makes his love so astounding. And that's what John 3.16 is saying. For God so loved the cosmos. And when you look that word up, cosmos, in the Gospel of John, in the epistles of John, cosmos is stressing the inherent badness and evil and rebellion of this thing, dead set in rebellion against God. That's what the cosmos is. It's not the planet Earth and the people on it. It's the entire world system that is in rebellion against God. That's what makes his love so great. Look at what God loved. He's not stressing bigness. He's stressing badness. It's not that his love stretched so wide. There are other verses that teach that. It's that his love has stooped so low. While we were enemies. Christ died for us. Are you of great worth as a human being? Yes. And that's why mom and dad, from the moment you hold that boy or girl in your arms, over and over and over and over, you catechize them by saying, who made you? God made you. Who made you? God made you. Nobody but God could make someone like you over and over and over and over. Are you of great worth as a human being? Yes. Are you worthy of the death of Jesus Christ? Absolutely, positively not. I would exhort you to read... Revelation chapter 5. John sees God the Father with the scroll of human destiny in his hand. Nobody on earth, under the earth, anywhere is worthy to take the scroll out of his hand and inaugurate God's saving program. And he begins to cry because that means God's program for salvation will not be inaugurated. And then he's told, stop, 
Stop crying. There is one who is worthy, one who has conquered the lion. And he looks to see the lion, and what does he see? A lamb. This lion has conquered not by ferocity, but by humility. He's the one worthy one, and he's praised for that very thing. Here is the worthy worm. So, are you a person of great worth? Absolutely. Does the Bible teach self-esteem? Yes, at this very point. You bear the likeness of the living God. Are you worthy of the death of Jesus Christ? Never. Okay? How are we doing on time, miss? Okay. Um, What about prevenient grace as a solution to man's inability to choose God? Does God give everyone enough grace to choose him? Is this a biblical idea? What is prevenient grace? It's this. As descendants of Adam, all people were born with no ability or desire to choose God. But God has counteracted this inability by giving to all people the gift of prevenient grace which was purchased by Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. This grace was not sought, asked for, requested by us. God of his own sovereign will gives it to everybody. What does this provenient grace effect? The restoration of human freedom. In other words, human freedom lost in Adam's sin has by God's provenient grace been sufficiently restored to all people everywhere so as to now furnish them with the power to either choose or refuse God's offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus purchased this gift for all without exception on the cross. God gives it to all people without exception. Hence... Key point now, the ultimate determination of salvation is the human decision to say yes or no to God. It does not guarantee that God will be chosen. It simply provides all people with the ability to choose salvation. I think that is an honest and accurate and fair definition that any Arminian would agree to. This is classic Arminianism. Not Armenianism. Armenia is a country. Arminius is a man, okay? And you can go back to the very first night where we provided some historical context. But this is classic Arminianism. And it serves two purposes. One, it protects the full teaching of the Bible with regard to the fall of the human race. And two, it ensures that a human being is the final and ultimate arbiter in his or her own eternal destiny. After all, you are the captain of your own ship. The question now is, is the doctrine of provenient grace taught in the Bible? And the answer to this is really simple. No. Okay? There is no explicit teaching in the Word of God to establish this doctrine. I mean, Norm and I were laughing about it the other day, talking about this. He goes, yeah, give me a verse for that one, you know. Rather, it is a deduction, beloved, that is based upon a logical inference. Okay, and that inference is this, that God would never give commands to people like the command to repent and believe if they did not possess the inherent ability to respond to them positively. In other words, if God commands a person to do something that the person is unable to do, then God is unjust if he punishes the person when he fails to do what was commanded. Here's the syllogism. 
Major premise. All people are spiritually dead. Minor premise. The universal call of the gospel assumes the universal ability to respond. Conclusion. To all spiritually dead people then, God has restored the ability to respond to the gospel. But the conclusion is invalid because of the fallacy in the minor premise, the assumption that God would not give commands without supplying the moral ability to obey them. But beloved, I want to encourage you tonight to think carefully. This is guided by human logic and rationality rather than the scriptures. And in the end, we cannot be driven by the desire to arrive at a conclusion that seems rationally satisfying to our fallen minds. At that point, you see, we become idolatrous that God's reason must be subject to our reason, that God's logic must be subject to our logic. Rather, we must be consumed with the desire to affirm the truth of God's word and then live with the tension and the mystery it leaves unresolved. Not only is there not one shred of explicit biblical teaching about provenient grace, Jesus Christ himself is the one who shatters this logical thinking. In John 6, Jesus refers to him as the bread of life. Now listen, listen to this. It's amazing. He says to the crowd, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. He who believes has eternal life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now, friends, given the repeated declarations of Jesus Christ, ought these unbelievers come to him in order to have eternal life? Yes, eternal life is found in no other person. But does the fact that they ought to come necessarily imply that they can come? The rational deduction of Arminianism is... Yes. And yet in the very same context, Jesus teaches the very opposite. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. They ought to come. They should come. But ought does not imply that they can It may be a bit helpful here, friends, to understand the distinction between physical ability and moral ability. Right? A human being is physically able to walk up a flight of steps, but unable to jump over houses. In a similar way, God gives commands to unbelievers that they can physically obey. They can hear of their sin. They hear the offer of the gospel. They can process it in their minds. They understand the concept, I must repent and I must believe. But these same unbelievers are morally unable to obey God's commands in the sense that they have no desire to do so. We're back to that illustration I used a few weeks ago about the horse who's given a T-bone steak and a bucket of oats. He has a choice. He can physically take the steak. But his disposition is set in such a way that he will always choose the oats. They should obey God's commands, and they certainly could if they wanted to do so. But as slaves to sin, they have no desire to do so. It is never, ever, 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 ever the case of a person really wanting to come, but they can't come. I want to be a Christian, but I just can't. Everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no such thing as somebody who wants the Lord and can't have him. They don't want him. 
Nobody can ever say, I want to come to Jesus, but I, I, I just can't. He's not going to let me. So why do any come? Why do any believe? Because according to Jesus, God does something for them that he does not do for all people. The Father draws them. And of course, several of you asked me now, is this unjust on the part of God to draw some and not others? I mean, you said a couple of weeks ago, the general call goes out to all. The effectual call only goes out to some. Many are called, the general call. Few are chosen, the effectual call. Is this unjust on the part of God? And the answer is yes, if people are innocent. No, if they're all guilty. And that's exactly what we are. You understand, beloved, if God drew none of us, he would be altogether just. I mean, ironically, if I walked into an orphanage with you tomorrow and I said, I'll take that one, you wouldn't argue with me because of the 99 others I didn't choose. I had no obligation to take any. The amazing thing is not that God chooses some and not others. The amazing thing is that God draws any. And what you must be very careful to guard against, beloved, is the idea that God would not be good unless he shows mercy equal to all. This comes very, very close to saying that the mercy of God is obligatory. But if God's mercy is on the basis of obligation, then his mercy is no longer undeserved but demanded by justice. And yet there must not be the slightest place for this in our thinking because the Bible makes it very clear that no one deserves to be saved, that all people could be sent justly to hell, and that God's mercy is so stunning for the very reason that it is altogether and in every way undeserved. So the question you see is not, is it just for God to draw some who cannot otherwise come over against drawing all? The really hard question is, how can people be responsible for not coming when they are born with an inclination that will not allow them to come? And the answer is because their guilt was determined by Adam, who as the representative for the human race possessed both physical and more ability to obey God, and yet he refused. And that guilt has been passed on to us. Adam has been our representative. You say, I don't like it. I don't think that's true, really. Are you going to die? Because Romans 5 says the reason why you die is because you were connected to Adam. He sinned. The wages of sin is death. If you die, that's proof that you have Adam's guilt. You say, well, Art, this is unsatisfying to me. So? What do you want me to do about it? The Arminian doctrine of provenient grace is attractive because it resolves all the tensions that exist between human responsibility and divine justice. But I appeal to you, beloved, that it cannot be exegetically vindicated. It is read into the scriptures, not drawn out of them. So what are we left with? We allow the meaning of the text to stand, all the while taking comfort from the fact that the Bible says again and again and again that God is always and in every way holy, righteous, Perfect and good. And therefore, his sovereignty does not require my vindication. 
Rather, I'm pleased with what pleases him. Everything he ever does is good all the time. And that's what makes living with a mystery tolerable and bearable and ultimately a cause for rejoicing. Because on the great and final day, that's what you will do. You will join with all of the angels in heaven and you will praise God, not only for his mercy in saving you, but for his justice in condemning the lost. Revelation 19 is beyond ambiguity at that point. Right now, we're not good enough, holy enough to even imagine doing such things. But on that day, we will rejoice just like Jesus did in Matthew 11 when he says, I praise you and thank you that you've hidden these things from some and revealed them to others. You're not good enough to do that now. I'm not good enough to do that now. But one day, when all that you're consumed with is the glory and honor of God, that's exactly what you'll do. One more. One more big one. Okay. Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. And then we'll make a little quick beeline to Second Timothy 2. So you may want to have your finger in both places. When Second Peter 3, 9 says that God is not willing that any should perish, is Peter referring to only those who are chosen or to all mankind in general... Are there two wills in God? So let's look at 2 Peter 3 real quickly. Um, 2 Peter 3, 1 to 8, he's talking about, 1 to 7, he's talking about the reality of judgment. That despite what people say, oh, you know, things are just going on the way they've always gone on. No, 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 no. Peter, oh, yes, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. But, verse 8, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Beautiful. Beautiful. God wants you to come to him. Don't you hear me say that every single week? I guess Calvinists can do that. Or else I'm schizophrenic. Don't answer the, what I just said. Now, 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. Notice this little phrase, and there are many others like it. Verse 24. Chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness... God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Now, are there two wills in God? Does the, spy, does the Bible speak of the will of God in more than one way? It seems to me, dear friends, that a fair and honest reading of the Scriptures will allow for only one answer. Yes, there are two wills in God. It is clearly evident from the two passages that I just read. On the one hand, we read about the will of God to save all. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
And yet, on the other hand, we read that repentance is something God grants to some people as a sovereign gift in hope that God will grant them repentance. God desires all persons to repent. This is the teaching of the Word of God. We have no ambiguity. Come, God wants you to repent now. God sovereignly grants the gift of repentance to some. This is the teaching of the Word of God. But if both of these are true, then our only conclusion is that there are two wills in God. Or perhaps a much better way of saying it, friends, is like this. God has two different ways of willing. Allow me to illustrate this in the most graphic way that I can. Has sin come into existence by accident? No, sin is not a rogue power out there in the cosmos, independent of God, a force that somehow managed to slip by God's defenses and mess up his intention for the human race. Sin exists because God himself has decreed it. You say, but Art, God hates sin. That's right, but God very often decrees the very thing that he hates. Yeah, I said it right. God hates the very thing he decrees. God decrees the very thing he hates. You say, well, why does he do that? Because in keeping with his holy plan, based upon his own infinite knowledge, its existence will serve a greater purpose than its non-existence, a purpose we may not fully understand. God has decreed the very sin his will forbids. And of all people, beloved, you ought to understand this. Because the most obvious example of this occurred in the very event that purchased your salvation, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. God willed the delivering up of his son, even though the very act represented a host of profoundly sinful actions, contrary to his own revealed will. I mean, whenever you get trouble with the theological conundrum, you run to the cross, always. The betrayal of Judas was driven by greed, a sin that God hates and is forbidden by his revealed will. The ridicule of Herod was driven by contempt, a sin that God hates and is forbidden by his revealed will. The passivity of Pilate was driven by spineless expediency, a sin that God hates and is forbidden by his revealed will. The malice of the Jews was driven by self-righteousness, a sin that God hates and is forbidden by his revealed will. The abuse of the soldiers was driven by sadistic delight, a sin that God hates and is forbidden by his revealed will. All of these wicked deeds, contrary to the revealed will of God, converged to bring about the greatest act of sin ever committed by the human race. The murder of the Son of God. A sin God hates and that is forbidden by His revealed will. And yet, at one and the same time, all of that evil, contrary to God's revealed will, was but the outworking of God's decreed, secret, sovereign, and efficient will. How did Peter say it on the day of Pentecost? This man was handed over to you by God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. By the way, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. You think the cross is an accident? A coincidence? A good plan gone wrong? Later on in the book of Acts, the corporate prayer of the Jerusalem church expresses the same sentiment. Sovereign Lord... Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. My dear friends, God wills obedience to his moral law. 
But that will very obviously can be rejected. This is made evident by many, many passages. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The man who does the will of God lives forever. The will of God in texts like these is the moral instruction of the Holy Scripture, the revealed will of God that clearly forbids sin. And so in one very real sense, we know it was not the will of God that Judas and Herod and Pilate and the Jewish mob and the Roman soldiers all worked together for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. However, in a very different sense, the crucifixion of, the G- of Jesus Christ is the most notorious expression of the will of God in all of created history. In the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God chooses certain actions to take place that he elsewhere commands not to happen. I mean, I, I just, to me, this is as obvious as obvious can be. God has two different ways of willing. We need to distinguish between what God would like to see happen and what actually does happen. You say, now, wait a minute. Are you saying that God wills something that, in fact, does not happen? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. You say, well, how can that be? Well, there are two possibilities. Possibility number one, there is a power in the universe greater than God's that is frustrating him by overriding what he wills. And then we're back to dualism. We're back to Star Wars again, right? God and Satan are kind of duking it out in this battle. And we know God wins because he's a little bit stronger. But, man, at times it's not clear how it's all going to come down. Satan acts and God has to kind of react. Possibility number two, God wills not to save all, even though he is willing to save all because there is something else he wills more, which would be lost if he exerted his sovereign power to save all. Now listen very carefully and we'll finish with this. Both Calvinists and Arminians can say that God wills for all people to be saved. Okay? You were hearing it out of the horse's mouth. God wants you to be saved. God wants you to be saved. God wants you to be saved. Both Calvinist and Arminian acknowledge that not all are saved. When asked why all are not saved, both the Calvinist and the Armenian answered that it is because God is committed to something that is even more important to him than saving all people. So what is this higher commitment? Or to ask it in a different way, what does God value even more than saving all people? According to the Arminian, God's greatest commitment is to the protection of human freedom. God will not override human freedom, even if it means that some of those he loves will perish eternally. He values human freedom as a priority higher than even that of saving all people. How does the Calvinist respond to the same question? If God wills for all people to be saved, then are not all people saved? Like the Arminian, the Calvinist asserts that there is something God values more than the saving of all people. But that higher commitment is not devoted to the protection of human freedom. It is a commitment that is devoted to the manifestation of the full range of his glory. Romans chapter 9, which includes both the manifestation of his mercy in saving some sinners and the manifestation of his wrath in not saving other sinners. 
Oh, yes, dear friends, in one very real sense, God wills for all people to be saved. And yet all of us agree that God only saves some. What is it that restrains God's will to save all people? His commitment to something even more important to himself than the saving of all people. There is something God loves more than you. You've heard me say this in the past. There's something God loves even more than the salvation of all people, and that is his own glory. There is something God loves even more than saving everyone. It is either his commitment to protect human self-determination or his commitment to the manifestation of his glory in the exercise of his divine sovereignty. And with all due respect, nowhere does the Bible teach the first And frequently, the Bible does teach the second. We have these two wills as revealed to us on the pages of Scripture so that you can hear us say without ambiguity, come to Christ. God wants you to be saved. God God takes no delight in the condemnation of the wicked. Come. He loves you. He wants you. But there is something God prizes even more than that, and that is the manifestation of his glory. Now, friends, in terms of next time, just to let you know what's coming, let me just read you a couple of the questions, some of which, um, well, I just want to make sure you have a sense. I'm not going to read all of them, but just a few of them. Here's one. Does predestination to salvation also mean predestination to hell? Are you a dual predestinationist? If everything is determined by God ahead of time, then his interactions with humans make no sense to me. Can we really have an impact on him if everything is predetermined? If Jesus died to save only a particular people, how do you explain verses like 2 Peter 2.1 and 1 John 2.2? When you discussed what Christ's atonement accomplished, you repeatedly mentioned intention. Is there a single intention in Christ's atonement? Or in addition to securing the salvation of the elect, did God intend through Christ's sacrifice to secure common grace for all, the renewal of creation at the end of time, and possibly other things that are not necessarily salvific? Someone knew what they were asking when they asked that question. Someone is very smart. And finally, what are some tools for sharing the gospel without the traditional sinner's prayer? That's a huge question and very, very important. And so we'll engage with those. And if we have time, five or six others that you've asked. So that's where we are tonight, friends.